through the book of Genesis, one chapter at a time, or one passage at a time. We are in chapter 35. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your blessing to attend both the proclamation of your word, the reading of your word, the proclamation of Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray in his name. Amen. I've been drawn to this passage as I've, as I've been studying it. Uh, personally, I'm in a spot where this passage is speaking directly into my life. Uh, I'm reminded of God's powerful and patient and forgiving grace toward us. His powerful, patient, forgiving grace toward us, especially in spite of the mess we make in our own lives. I'm also reminded that even when we are closest to God, that the sorrows and pains of life do continue to confront us. And actually, that's going to be for next week. Uh, I chopped this sermon in half, actually about in third. Um, so we will uh, continue this sermon next week. But this is a passage that, that God is using to speak into my life and I pray that He would use it to speak into your life as well. And when we come to church with our beautiful sanctuary, with our well-manicured lawn, we are, and we are wearing our Sunday best, it's easier to forget the messiness of our lives. It's easier to forget the ongoing battle we have with our sins. It's easier to forget the daily pains and sorrows that we face each day. In one respect, it is healthy to leave those things behind and come to church and experience the taste of the heavenly life that awaits us. You know, we need a break from the pressures, from the pains, from the stresses we endure during the week. That's why God gives us a Sabbath rest. But at the same time, if you do not bring your real life with this messiness, with his pains, with his sorrows, with you to worship, then your messiness, your sorrows, your pains are just waiting at home for you to, to, to return. Here's what I'm saying. If you come to church and pretend that your problems aren't real, or if you pretend that your problems and pains are manageable, then you'll be sadly mistaken when you get home because they'll be there waiting on you. Um, but if you come to church and you want God to deal with you in regard to your life, with all its messiness, with all its problems, with all its sorrows, with all its pains, um, you bring these things to God. And church becomes what the Sabbath rest was intended to be. A true rest for your souls. Because it's only as God gives us rest in Him that we receive rest in our souls. In spite of our messiness. In, in, uh, in, in spite of our pains. 
and our sorrows. Genesis 35 gives us uh, a whole lot of honest reality. And so I invite you to enter into this passage as I've been doing this week. Put yourself in Jacob's place as he experienced the circumstances of this chapter. Now in order to understand what's happening in in Genesis 35, uh, we must remember what happened in, in Genesis 33 and 34. You remember after Jacob was reunited with his brother Esau, that uh, Jacob turned back, recrossed the Jabbok uh, River, and stayed east of the Jordan River in a little town called Succoth. He stayed there for a while. Finally, Jacob crossed the river, came into the land of Canaan, and he settled in a town called Shechem. Over the past couple of weeks, we've marveled that Jacob lingered That he didn't go to to Bethel where God had first met him, where God had called him to go. Instead, he's lingering here in Succoth. He's lingering here in Shechem. He lingered for about ten years. And then, of course, as he was living in Shechem, a great tragedy occurred. His daughter Dinah was raped. And then in response, Jacob's, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, deceived the people of Shechem, went in and killed every man living in the town. And then finally God said, Enough! Jacob, go to Bethel where I told you, where I first appeared to you, remember the ladder? That's where he appeared appeared to Jacob on his way over to uh, Padam Haran to, to live with his uncle. And he said, return to Bethel. And so look at verses 1 through 4. This is where God says to Jacob, get up, leave Shechem, and go where I, where I had already told you a long time ago, that you should go and where you should now be living. God said to Jacob, verses 1-4, through Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the Tenebreth uh, tree that was near Shechem. This is very important. This is Christianity 101. God took the initiative. Here's Jacob. He's lingering. And God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel. See, God always takes the initiative. This is basic Christianity. If you don't get this, everything else can easily become distorted. It is God who takes the initiative. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? 
they stood in the garden. What did God do? He took the initiative. He went and sought them out. When David sinned with Bathsheba, David tried to cover his tracks. God took the initiative. He sent Nathan the prophet to uncover his sin. When Israel continually rejected God, continually rejected God's rule over them, God sent them judges. God sent them prophets over and over and over again. But in each instance, all the way through the Bible, it is God who takes the initiative. Finally, as the Israelites continued to reject God, God took the initiative again and sent His own Son, Jesus Christ. You know John chapter 1, verses 6-11. through 11. Listen, and you'll hear God taking the initiative. He sent John the Baptist, and then He sent Jesus. John, 6, John chapter 1, verses 6-11, through 11, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came, as a witness to bear, or he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all men might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. The point I want to stress here, it is God who takes the initiative. God is the hound of heaven, continually seeking sinners. Jesus said, I came to seek the lost. See, our gracious God always takes the initiative. If He did not first seek us, we would never have sought Him. And God's seeking always produces results. His grace is irresistible. His seeking, His seeking sinners always brings transformation because God is seeking to produce repentance in His people. So Jacob and his whole family... When God took the initiative, then it produced results. Jacob and his whole family collected all their false gods, all their idols, all their their um, their their earrings, nose rings, all those kinds of things that they were using in their pagan worship. They collected them, they buried them, and then they left for Bethel. Let's say you're here this morning. And you want to know how to begin a relationship with God. Verses 1 through 4 give you these steps. First of all, your desire to know God is not, first of all, your desire. Rather, it is God working in you. And that should encourage you. If you're sitting here saying, how can I know God? It should encourage your heart to know that you're asking that question not because you're a smart or a wonderful person but because our wonderful God is taking the initiative and causing you to ask that question. Next, stop trusting in anything other than God. 
Jacob's family, what were they trusting in? They were trusting in these these household gods, in this false uh, pagan religion. And so they uh, gathered all their, their false gods and buried them. Stop trusting in anything other than God. I know what your stumbling block is. It would be trusting in yourself. In fact, the pagan religion that they that Jacob and his family were worshiping was really a a a form of trusting in themselves. Um, so, what I would urge you as a, as the next step: stop trusting in yourself. You've got to deny yourself in order to trust God. You can't trust in yourself and God at the same time. You've got to let go of yourself in order to fully embrace Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, If anyone would come after Me, He's telling people how to know Him, how to follow Him. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. So, stop trusting in yourself in order that you might trust in Jesus. And then the next step is follow Him. Jacob arose and went to Bethel. Again, Jesus in Luke 9, verse 23, He said, Take up your cross daily and follow Him. Now, if you don't want to follow Jesus, or if you're just indifferent to Christ and the Gospel, well, that's because, and it's only because, God has not taken the initiative with you yet. Maybe He never will. That's a dangerous place to be. To be indifferent to the Gospel. To not want to follow Christ. What if God never takes the initiative with you and you never follow Him and you die in your sins? What should you do? I'll tell you what you should do. You should beg Him to take the initiative with you and make you want to know Him. Jacob was worried that the people, uh, the surrounding peoples would uh, attack he and his family as they moved from Shechem down to Bethel. But you know what? Jacob had nothing to worry about because God had caused a terror to fall on all the people. Look at verses 5 through 8. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because the Lord had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So the place uh, called its name Alon Bakuth. 
God caused a terror to fall upon all the people. In other words, God is in full and complete control over all His creatures and over all their actions. And His love for His people means that He always covers His people with His with His providential care. There is not one moment ever in your life when you are outside of God's watch care, of His providential care over you. Young people, when it's dark at night and you're in your room by yourself, you're not by yourself. God is with you. His watch care covers you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He is always working all things together for your good. I became a Christian near the end of my freshman year in college. And then that following summer, I went fishing uh, with my best friend and, and my best friend's dad. We were in this small little John boat out in the middle of a lake. He put three rednecks in close proximity to each other. <laughs> and something, stu- uh, something stupid is bound to happen pretty quickly. Well, my best friend's father went to, to cast his, his rod. He was sitting in the middle. My best friend in front of the boat. I was in the back of the boat. And my best friend's father went to, to cast his rod. And as he swung back to, to cast, the, the hook hit me in the face. And uh, I grabbed the string and pulled him to stop. And thankfully, he didn't follow through. Otherwise, um, what would have happened is my eye would have been ripped out of its socket. Because the hook went through my eyelid. And the hook was resting on top of my eye. Not in my eyeball, but on top of it. And so as, I, as, as my eye moved, I could feel the hook um, on the top of my eyeball. <laughs> And uh, the worm was still on the part of the hook that did not go into my eye, so I had a worm hanging hanging on uh, on my cheek. When I opened my eye and realized that I could still see, I knew something was happening. It was a little bit of blood coming down, but when I realized I could still see. Um, I had the strangest sensation. I think I may have told you about this before. That there was an angel that was guiding the hook as it went between the bone right here and my eyeball and was resting on top of my eyeball without actually going in my eyeball. Um, And so I ended up going to the hospital. The doctor deadened it with a shot, poked the hook back through my eyelid, snipped off the, the barb, and then pulled it out and sent me home. I think he may have given me a tetanus shot as well. Um, I still remember uh, very vividly uh, how I sensed that there was an angel there. And again, you know, it, was, it could have just been my relief, uh, my, my emotion. Um, but the Bible does say that God sends His angels to care for His own. And I can tell you 
that as you are God's child, that His loving, providential um, uh, care goes with you and covers you regardless of your circumstances. Whether the circumstances are big and overwhelming, God is there and in control of those circumstances. Or whether the circumstances are small and seemingly inconsequential, God is there. He is in control of your circumstances. He directs every circumstance in your life. And He does it for your good and for His glory. And it is all done according to His wisdom. And so here's Jacob traveling down to Bethel. God had caused His terror to rest upon all the peoples. You may not realize it when you are going through whatever circumstances. God is there He is with you. He is directing not only you, but everyone and everything around you for your good and for His glory. Now, why do we have a hard time believing that? I think one of the reasons we have trouble believing that God is watching over us and loving us so much is because of our guilt. We know our sins... And so we often picture God as waiting there to crush us. And um, we think of God as being angry with us rather than, than loving us and caring for us. And our, our consciences accuse us and we often think, I know God loves me, but I don't think He likes me very much. Brothers and sisters, that is what we call in the South stinking thinking. Um, our God always for, uh, forgives His children completely. Look at verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when He came from Padam Aram and blessed him. This verse 9 here is the reason why I cut this sermon in half. Uh, I am so jealous for you to understand and grasp what God is saying here in verse 9. You know, I never tell you to underline this verse or that verse in your Bibles, but I, I want to tell you, underline verse 9, and not all of verse 9, just a, just a small phrase, and the phrase is, when, he, when Jacob came from Padam Aram. I think this is vital and I want you to understand it. You say, wow, that's real exciting. Jacob came from Padam Aram. You know, I know I saw no other commentators make reference to the significance of this phrase, so I started to become skeptical that I was reading it correctly. But the more I dwelled on it, the more certain I became. It does not say when Jacob came to Bethel. It does not say when Jacob left Shechem. 
It says when Jacob came from Potom Aram. What is Potom Aram? That is where his uncle was. In other words, God completely overlooked the ten years that Jacob lingered in disobedience in Succoth and Shechem. It's like God completely forgot Jacob's disobedience for those ten years. And this passage does not say that God punished Jacob for living in Shechem for those ten years. It doesn't say that God continued piling on consequences for his slow obedience, for his lingering. Rather, what does it say? It says, when he came from Padam Aram and God blessed him. Do you see where I'm headed? I want you to take out your bulletins from the responsive reading. First column for your for your reading where it says congregation. This is from Psalm 103 verses 8 through 10. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. He casts our sins as far as east is from the west. Another passage of Scripture says, He remembers them no more. This is justification by faith. This is the prodigal father welcoming his child home unconditionally, throwing the party the moment his son comes home. This is God saying, I overlook your sin completely. Now, of course, God is a just God. And we know the only condition by which God could overlook that sin. And that is that sin must be paid for. And that's why our Lord Jesus Christ came. He came to pay for our sins. If you were in Jesus Christ, if you're in Jesus Christ, Jesus has paid for your sins. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. They will not be counted against you on the day of judgment. And I think this is the reason why God says, talking to Jacob, when he came from Patamaram, he overlooked them. Because he knew that the Savior, Jesus Christ, was coming to die for his sins. And I fear the the person who's sitting here wondering, should I know God? Should I have a relationship with Him? Well, what are you going to do with your sins on the day of judgment? Well, come to know Christ. Cast your sins upon Him. 
then He will cast them as far as the east is from the west because Christ paid for them. I want to conclude uh, by quoting Charles Spurgeon. I found, I couldn't believe it, Charles Spurgeon uh, confessed an error in one of his sermons. And it's an error that I've made. Spurgeon said, I have... I said that clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we are accepted as if we never sinned. He said, I correct myself. Had we never sinned, we could only have stood in the righteousness of man. But in this day by faith, we stand in the righteousness of God Himself. The doings and the dyings of our Lord Jesus Christ make us make for us a wedding dress more glorious than human merit could have spun, even if unfallen Adam had been the spinner. In other words, the forgiveness, the justification that God gives to you through Jesus Christ. It doesn't simply mean that all your sins have been taken away and you have a zero in your account. Your past, present, and future sins cast away. It's more glorious than that. God gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that you are clothed in His righteousness and so it is in Jesus Christ alone we stand. It is in Jesus Christ alone where we stand in the day of judgment. Trust in Him. Let's pray together. Father, this passage speaks to us right where we live, right in the middle of our messiness. And it reminds us that You love Your own, You care for Your own, and You completely forgive Your own, and even clothe them in Your righteousness. Oh Lord, how far short we fall of our view of Your love for us. Father, I pray that You would remind us again of Your justifying grace for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask in His name. Amen.